So we've been talking about the gifts of the Spirit for like the last month and a half, and, I, and I've been telling you guys over and over again, and I'm going to beat this up as much as I have to, that, that a sign of New Covenant Christianity is power. It's, it's that real faith looks like hearing from God and doing what He says. Um, one of the things that we've, we've lost because of the Protestant Reformation was this idea of what the faith is. Many of us, if you're taught, how many of you believe that you're in the faith? Just show of hands. You're in the faith. Uh, since the Protestant Reformation, there's been this idea that you're in the faith if you've believed upon these certain facts. And, and I'm here to tell you that that's not what being in the faith means. In the faith is a continual thing. It means you're continually hearing him and doing what he tells you. That's what it means to be in the faith. Uh, Abraham, when he was asked to sacrifice his son, uh, he was in the faith because he he went about to do what God told him. Uh, and then obviously God delivered his son from being sacrificed and provided a sacrifice for us. And the same thing is true of us. He's provided us with a sacrifice to set us free from our sins. Um, but to, to remain in the faith looks different for, for every one of us because God calls us to do different things. And, and many of those things look like operating whatever gifts he's given to each one of us. Uh, tonight, I want to I deal with an, another gift that we haven't really talked much about. We, we, we've demonstrated a lot. We've prayed for people a lot, but we've never really talked about the things that hinder us from seeing these kind of miracles and healings, and that is the gift of healing. Uh, I want to cover specifically misconceptions we all have about healing. Uh, and my hope is that if I can dismantle these misconceptions, there would be nothing stopping you from praying for every person you encounter. Um, and I don't want us to ever get away from that. I want that to be the normative thing in our life, is that praying for the sick, whether we see them healed or not, that praying for the sick is the normal response that we have to encountering sickness, disease, infirmity. Any problem that we encounter in this life, you know exactly how to face that thing. Uh, there was a, a verse that just kept playing through my head, and I, it took me forever to actually find the passage. But it, but it, it was Paul, when he was uh, talking to the Corinthian church, he was dealing with, with a new level of arrogance that they've, they've come to. They began to question the teachings of Paul. They began to judge Paul. And so he says this about them. He says, and this is, this is a kind of like a, I don't know, like a word that's appropriate to say, but this is a gutsy thing to say. He says, when I come to you, he says, I will come to you soon, Lord willing, and I will find out not only the talk of these arrogant people, but also their power. I mean, that's kind of a gutsy thing to say. I mean, how many pastors in churches in the West can have that kind of test? You know, they, they make a lot of statements, often arrogant. I'm a pastor, I know. I'm guilty of it. But, but if Paul were to say that of us, like, I'll find out not just the things that they say, but their power. He says, for the kingdom of God is not demonstrated in idle talk, but with, fa with power. And I'll tell you, I, I see very little power in the church as a whole, in the West. I see a lot of power when I go to other churches in the East, but not much here in the West. And, and, and I'm convicted and I'm convinced that, our, that the thing that's lacking is something that we could restore. That the thing that's lacking in, in Christianity, that, that those of us in this room, we're in a unique point in history that we can show the world what the kingdom really looks like. And so what I'm trying to do is make a course correction in the church at large, which is why I travel and speak in other places. But I want to make sure that this community doesn't consist in idle talk, but with power. That all of us, when confronted with a real kingdom obstacle, you know how to respond. Um, so let's start there. Um, The other week I was in uh, uh, Corpus Christi, and something the Lord's been doing with me, and I think I mentioned this last week, is he keeps giving me people's names and, and then conditions that they have in their body to pray for them. And I've been praying consistently, like, Lord, I want you to prove what I'm talking about. And I always do this. Like, I don't want to just talk about uh, kingdom power. I want to actually demonstrate it so people will believe not just in God, but the message that I'm preaching about them. Because I think there's two pivotal things that we must that must line up. It's what we think about him, that must be true, and what we think about ourselves. Because both of those things have an impact on how we live out our lives. 
For instance, if you think God is, is a, you know, uh, um, punitive person, like a cosmic cop waiting to pounce on you, how many of you are going to be kind of afraid to go around God? I mean, a lot of us are, because we know that none of us are perfect. We've all have, we all have stuff, right? And if you think God is punitive in that way, you're going to be scared to come to him. But the scriptures tell us to approach him with confidence, complete confidence. That means you're not looking down when you approach him. You're looking right up in his face, knowing that you have a right to be in that place, that you stand in front of him without shame or condemnation. Um, same thing is true about ourselves. If you don't believe who you are in Christ, if you don't know the kind of authority that he's placed in you, then when you encounter problems in this world, when you encounter spiritual warfare, uh, the way people treat you, if you don't know who you are in Christ, you will shrink back in fear because of this. You don't really know what you believe. Right now, what you believe is only theory until you're confronted with a need to actually prove what you believe. For instance, I, I remember I was... Uh, I had a friend who overdosed from drugs. And I suddenly find myself in the morgue praying for this guy in front of his mother to be raised from the dead. Now, how many of you believe on a theoretical level that God can use you to raise the dead? How many of you have actually laid your hands on a dead person? See, the numbers go down, don't they? And, and when you're actually there in a morgue standing with this child's mother, suddenly what you believe looks very different. How you feel about what you're about to try to do is very different. And I'm telling you, that's the way it is with all of, all of the things in the kingdom. What we really believe is only theory until you're actually faced with a need to prove it. Uh, forgiveness is a great example. How many of you know that you're supposed to forgive your brother as many times as you're offended? Now, we know that in theory, but until you're faced with somebody who's hurt you deeply and you have to continue to walk out every day what it looks like to love and forgive that person, it's a totally another matter entirely. Um, I'm living that out. I'm having to, to live out what it looks like to forgive and love somebody despite how much they've hurt you. And it is not easy. It just, it isn't. And, and it's in that moment you have to know what kind of faith you have. Is it the kind of faith that, that, that lives out obedience? like doing what God has told you. Um, so tonight I want to talk about some of these obstacles, things that get in the way of, of what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, um, just misconceptions that we have specifically when it comes to healing and miracles. So here's my first misconception. How many of you have heard the phrase, seek the giver, not the gifts? Anybody ever heard that before? How many of you have heard it from your cessationist friends who are trying to convince you out of the gifts entirely? Now, we hear that, right? Seek the giver, not the gifts. Well, I, I say that's a misconception because I don't think you could distinguish between the two if you tried. The scriptures, first off, can you find any passage in the scriptures that says, seek the giver, not the gifts? You won't find one in there. You know why? I'm going to let you in on a little secret. It's not in there. Nowhere do you see that. Matter of fact, you do actually see on three occasions Paul telling you to seek the gifts. Like verbatim. He says these words. Desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Matter of fact, that word desire earnestly is the same Greek word for lust after. So question for you. Do you think to lust after something means that you should be seeking after something? Only time in scripture we're told to actually lust after something. Gifts of the Spirit. But here's the other thing. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, so, so in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 15, Paul's going to say three times, desire earnestly spiritual gifts. That literally means to lust after, to pursue these things. Um, the other thing is, instead of calling them gifts of the Spirit, he'll, he'll go back and forth between another phrase, and he'll call them in 1 Corinthians 12, manifestations of the Spirit. In other words, what does it look like when the Spirit comes? What are things that you should expect? Well, when the Spirit's there, how do you know it? Well, he manifests himself. He makes himself known. And how does he do that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, his manifesting his presence in that place looks like gifts of the Spirit. And he mentions nine of them in particular. A gift of faith, gift of words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophecy, healing, tongues, interpretation, miracle working. 
He calls them manifestations of the Spirit. I think a good question to ask your cessationist friend is, how do you know the Spirit's at work in your church? Do you have manifestations? Does he show his presence is evident? Um, here's another one. In, in both Matthew 7 and Luke 11, Jesus is going to tell the disciples to do this. He's going to say, ask, seek, and knock. Right? And he's talking about prayer, right? How many of you would agree that those passages are about prayer, right? Ask and you shall seek and you shall knock and the door will be okay. Well, if you read down what he's specifically referring to, he says, if any of you have a son and they come to you and they ask you for a piece of bread, you're not going to throw them a stone, are you? If one of your kids comes to you and asks you for an egg, you're not going to throw them a scorpion or a serpent. Are you going to do that? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? The word good gifts is the same word that you get in 1 Corinthians 12 for gifts of the Spirit. It's charismata. Now, check this out. This is even more interesting. So, in Matthew 7, he's going to use, well, actually, I, I'm not sure which one it is. It's either Luke 11 or Matthew 7. I can't remember. But in one of them, he says, give good gifts to those who ask. Do you know what it says in the other gospel? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Question for you. Are you really able to distinguish between Holy Spirit and gifts of the Spirit? You get one, you get the other. No matter what. Now, I'm telling you this, like, this is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to manifest his presence in you. It looks like you giving gifts, giving the Holy Spirit to those around you. Uh, that's why in, in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's going to say this. He says, okay, so when you assemble together, one of you has a psalm, one of you has a teaching, one of you has a tongue, one of you has an interpretation, one has a revelation. In other words, we all come with a different gift to give away. That means none of us get to be spectators anymore. Right? There's no such thing as, as spectator Christianity. Now, you may be sitting in this chair right now. You may not have the microphone, but that does not mean that you were giftless. It does not mean you showed up here just to receive a gift. You actually came here with a gift to give away. And it is entirely in your will, your choice, as to whether or not you're going to give it away. Nobody is stopping you here. Notice already, did I pray for all the sick people in the room or did you pray? Which means what are we doing every week when I, when I have you guys pray for each other? Am I keeping the power to a limited few people in the room or am I saying that God has given his power out freely as he decided? There is no such thing as a JV Holy Spirit. I was in, um, no, let me tell a story. I got a lot of stories to tell. Here's the thing. Uh, the expectation of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. Do you, hmm. Let me back up. How many of you uh, are familiar with what happened at Azusa Street? Early 1900s, Holy Spirit gets poured out. They called it a baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were to look on the, the Assembly of God webpage today and look at what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, they're going to tell you that, that it means that you've, been, uh, you've had this encounter with the Holy Spirit where now you speak in tongues. But at Azusa Street, where that doctrine was actually kind of came from, they didn't believe that. At Azusa Street, they thought the baptism of the Holy Spirit resulted in, in uh, all believers coming together in unity across social class and race. Did you know that? You don't hear that taught, do you? That's not common. But, but the reason they got that was because of what took place in Acts chapter 2. Were all of those people that were there at Pentecost, were they all from the same nation? Or were they gathered together from different nations, different tribes, and different tongues? It is literally a reversal of what happens in Acts chapter 11 when God separates mankind and he, he divides them up into new borders uh, with different languages. See, he, there was a separation that took place and that's why we have all these different nations. But then in Acts chapter 2, 
God decides to pour out his spirit so he can create one new man. That the gift of tongues being poured out, that sign in particular, was to show that he was bringing all mankind back together. Now, I remember being taught this when I was uh, getting in trouble with my old ministry back in, uh, when I was like 23. Uh, somebody made the complaint that I was teaching on the gifts of the Spirit. And they were saying, well, you know, that kind of stuff is for the really mature believer. You know, I was doing, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to out this ministry. I was doing Young Life at the time. I, listen, I love this ministry. I got nothing negative to say about that. This was just literally my experience in this moment. But, but I was being, uh, uh, being called into the office because I was talking about gifts of the Spirit. And one of the complaints is you shouldn't be teaching high school kids these gifts because, you know, they're new believers, they're, they're immature. But the scriptures don't actually teach that. Matter of fact, it teaches just the opposite. Um, Paul says of the Corinthian church, I could not give you solid food for you are still yet immature. But he also says this of them, you're not lacking in any gifts. And then in Ephesians 4, he talks about the, the, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. He says these gifts were given to the church. Why? To bring us in for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, until we attain the unity of the faith to a mature man, to the fullness that is in Christ. So what are the gifts of the Spirit? What are they supposed to do for the church? Those particular gifts were meant to equip all the saints so that they can do the works of God until the entirety of the church resembles a unified faith that's mature to the measure and stature of Christ himself. Question for you. Is the church more mature today, more unified today? And what do you also see absent in a lot of the church? See, the gifts of the Spirit were meant to actually mature you and unify you. Seek the giver, not the gifts. Come on, people. Seek them both. What's the result going to be? More maturity, more looking like Christ, more unity in the church. I mean, you think about it, that this idea that the Spirit, you were baptized, this means you were immersed into Holy Spirit. When you came out of the waters of Holy Spirit, you know where you ended up? In this weird thing called the body of Christ. And what makes us a body? Well, the fact that we all have different parts to play. You may have this gift. You may have this gift. You may be a hand. You may be an eye. But together, we make one new man. This immersion into the Holy Spirit, when you come out, you're meant to be one new man. All of us exhibiting our gifts, working together, functioning together. You ever think about it this way? Uh, tongues, for instance. You ever hear somebody tell you, uh, well, you're not supposed to speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter. How many have been taught that? Now, now I'm not going to deny that, that that shouldn't happen. You should have interpretation in a public forum where there's unbelievers or people who are un, uninformed about the gifts. Yeah, you should have some interpretation. That would be wise, right? Otherwise, people are going to think, man, they're crazy, right? However, here's another question for you. How will you ever know if someone has the gift of interpretation unless someone speaks in tongues? You see, they work together. You can't have one without the other, right? You can't have an interpretation unless somebody speaks in tongues, right? You need them both. See, this is how God has knit all mankind together. Every race, every socioeconomic class, every tribe, they're all one new thing. All right, let's move on. I'm kind of beating a dead horse here. Let's talk about another misconception regarding healing in particular. Ever been told, maybe it's just not God's timing? How many of you have thought that? Maybe it's just not my time. Okay. Well, I'm here to tell you that it is far more God's timing today than it was 2,000 years ago. It is. And when you see Jesus heal, how many times do you read the words, and he healed them all? Or one of the apostles, it says, all were being healed. Many who were possessed of evil spirits were being delivered. It is far closer to that day today than it was back then. And here's how I know this. Jesus, he walks into a synagogue. And he says, this is, actually, just go there. Go to Luke chapter 4 real quick. Go fast, because we got, we got a lot to cover. Go to Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 16.
said, he came to Nazareth, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And it, as was his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, this, he says, as was his custom, because he was a rabbi. That meant it was customary for rabbis to walk into the synagogue and begin to teach. He was a known teacher in that place. So he stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, this is kind of cool. The, the way that the synagogues would teach, because people were now scattered across the Roman Empire, uh, I mean, Israelites, they were all over the world at this, at the known world at this time. Uh, they created things called synagogues. Instead of everybody worshiping at the temple, they can now go on the Sabbath to the synagogue to hear from their, from their holy scripts, right? And so they had, and, and Catholicism just picked up right where Judaism left. Ever notice how every year in a Catholic church, they'll, on the same day of the same year, they'll read the exact same passage of scripture? Okay, this is exactly what the Jewish people did at this time. So on this particular day, it was time to read from the book of Isaiah. So they hand him the book of Isaiah. I think this is so neat. He says, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What year is it? favorable year of the Lord. Now read, let's look at the next little bit. Did I, did I give you that passage, Luke? I might have messed that up. Here we go. Ah, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. It says the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, everybody say today. today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what year was it when Jesus was reading from the scroll of Isaiah? The year of the Lord's favor. Question for you. If it was the year of the Lord's favor back then, and Jesus died, and then he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven, he took a seat on a throne, and then he decided to pour out the Holy Spirit on all flesh, how much more is it the day of the, the Lord's favor today? I'm here to tell you we should be seeing far more than they did. So the problem is not on God's end with his timing. Got it? The timing is to, for today. Here's something interesting. Do you know that Jesus actually left a verse out of that Old Testament passage in Isaiah? Do you know that? Look, let's go to the actual original version. Go to Isaiah. This is, uh, let me tell you what verse it is. Hold on a second. Oh, has he got it up there? Yeah, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Oh, see what he didn't say? The day of vengeance of our God. What does that tell you about today? See, today is the day of God's mercy, his healing powers for today. It's not the day to punish you for all of your sins and afflict you with sickness and disease and infirmity, is it? No, see, God is delivering you from those things, not afflicting you of those things. Here's another misconception. Let's go with this one. God will not heal you or use you because of what you have done. Any of you ever felt disqualified before? See, one of the things I notice that happen is when I begin to pray for somebody, so every once in a while, the Lord will tell me, Michael, they don't feel like they deserve this. They feel like they've got this because of something they did. I've had that happen. I mean, I've, I've literally, I've looked at people and asked them, have you been thinking... God won't heal you right now because of some sin of your past. This is especially true with people who have a certain sickness or infirmity, and it is because of something they've done. But I'm here to tell you, remember the guy who was, who was paralyzed and Jesus healed him? What did he say to the man? Go and sin no more. Did Jesus withhold healing from that guy because the sin that caused that infirmity? says, go and sin no more because I don't want anything worse to happen to you. 
That means that on some level, this guy was in that sickness or that infirmity because of his sin. But Jesus didn't stop from healing him either, did he? Um, but check this. This is another one. Didn't Jesus already deal with your sin? If he didn't spare his own son, didn't it say, will he not also freely give us all things? Jesus has already been punished. There's no need to punish yourself any further. James 5.14, I love this passage. It says, is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice here the reason why he attaches confession to the prayer of healing. Because oftentimes, he doesn't just want to heal the outward signs of your sin. He wants to heal the condemnation that still remains because of it. In other words, he doesn't, he doesn't, not only does he want you to be healed outwardly, he also wants you to be healed inwardly. Not just the, the, the pain that you bear, but the pain, the turmoil, the condemnation, the shame that you've got inside. He doesn't want you to live with that. You see, he's already punished his son for every wrong thing you've ever done. So who is he that condemns you? It's not Jesus. It's not God. Let me, let me just say this also. You are not uniquely bad. Do you hear me? There is nothing that you have ever done in this life that makes you uniquely bad. See, the enemy does everything he can to keep us entrapped in that place of thinking that somehow because what I did is so much worse than what someone else did that I'm uniquely bad. And that's a lie. Here, here let, me, let me just move on this for a second. If, if you have felt this way, if you have felt like you're uniquely bad, I want you to stand up real quick. Just stand up. Just step out in faith. I, I want you to just own this for a second. I want you to repeat after me. Go for this. Just repeat after me. Jesus, you paid for that too. And put your hand on your heart for a second. Holy Spirit, would you move on that very thing? I break the power of the enemy the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses you day and night. Father, would you silence the voice of the accuser over their ears? There is no such thing as a unique, uniquely bad person. There's just bad people. Thank you, Jesus, that, that you paid for that very thing. And I just, I speak to the enemy right now. If that thing makes them uniquely bad, if that thing is really holding them back, then the blood of Jesus was not enough, and I'm unwilling to say that. Right now, I claim the blood of Jesus was enough. Let me just rephrase that. The blood of Jesus was more than enough. It is powerful to cover every kind of sin. In the name of Jesus, I break this thing off of you. All shame and condemnation, leave now and never come back. Say amen. Grab a seat. Here's another misconception. Oh, let me back up for a second. You think you're uniquely bad? Let me tell you about some of the people that God has used. Ever heard of Saul? Do you know that he murdered one of the foremost wonder workers in the New Testament? murdered one of the wonder workers, one of the, the guys who was actually doing signs and wonders. People were coming to the faith because of this guy. It says that he was full of the Spirit. Many people were being healed. And Saul had this man murdered. Do you know who God begins to use next? You know who became one of the foremost apostles? Saul. David had a man murdered 
stole his wife and had children with her. And yet we're told that he's given this special title of the man after God's own heart. Not a title given to anybody else in scripture. Which tells you, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you, nothing you have done was, was too much for the blood of Christ. Nothing. All right, next mis mis misconception. Jesus healed absolutely every time. Check this out. This is in Mark chapter 8. It says, they came to Bethsaida. They brought a man who was blind to Jesus, and they asked Jesus to touch him. So he took the man by the hand, brought him outside the village. Then he spit on the man's eyes. That's an interesting method. Any of you ever tried that one before? It's like, come on, blind eyes. I'm like, I, I, I don't want to be blind. And I don't want to be healed of blindness either. Like, it's a lose-lose situation there. Either I get spit on my eyes or I remain blind. It says he spit on his eyes. I just, I can't get over that. Like, I, I'm just like, Jesus, what were you thinking? Like, you think that's, a, that's one of the worst things you could do to somebody is spit on them. And it, it just sort of goes to show that even the most worthless thing in Jesus can still be used to do miracles. Uh, it says he spit on the man's eyes, he placed his hands on his eyes, and he asked, do you see anything? Regaining his sight, he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, does that sound like he was completely healed? If all you could see were things that looked like trees walking around, are you healed? Not completely, right? So then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored. How many times did Jesus have to pray? Two times, that's right, you're counting it right. Two times he had to pray. Now, if Jesus, the Son of God, one who was given the Spirit without measure, had to pray more than once, what does it say about all of us? Might take more than one time. Don't stop praying just because it didn't work out the first time. Do you know when you stop praying? Whenever you feel like it. Now, for me, now, this is the other thing. Uh, just because you weren't healed when someone prayed for you once doesn't mean you stopped pursuing healing for yourself. I had cluster migraines for the majority of my life. From age 15 to about age uh, 30, no, not quite 30, 28, I was afflicted with migraines that were, were literally, I, like I, I tell you this, they were excruciating. My friends, I remember the, the, they got so accustomed to watching me go through these migraines, you could actually see it. The, the veins on the side of my head would pulsate. You could literally see the pain on my face. The right side of my face would begin to sag, and I just had this haggard look on me. I would have them uh, every day. They'd last from a, one hour to four hours. I'd sometimes have them two, three times in a day, and they'd come every day for a month. I'd spent four, three to four months out of the year uh, incapacitated. I would walk into the college university and I'd have to take classes and try to give them my attention. Meanwhile, my head is throbbing. And after the fact, after, I was, uh, after the, the migraine sort of subsided, it felt like I had just gotten out of a boxing match with Muhammad Ali. I felt so beat up and exhausted. Do you know how many times I had people pray for me? I remember I had, a, I had one guy, a guy named Steve Thompson, super prophetic. He looked at me. He said, you get migraines. They're on the right side of your, your head. I'm like, yeah. He says, it starts here in the neck. It goes up around, and it's like someone's grabbing a hold of your eye. I'm like, you just described exactly the pain I was going through. Do you know what happened? He prayed for me. I didn't get healed. Now, explain that to me. Explain that to me. He tells me the very symptoms that I have, prays for me, and then nothing happens. See, I made a decision that I was going to continue to pursue prayer for healing until one of two things happened. Either God audibly said, Michael, I'm not going to heal you, or I was healed. One way or the other. Now, I didn't mind. If I didn't feel like getting prayer, I didn't mind telling somebody, no, not right now. But I also, I still continue, continued to pursue it. And I'm telling you, it was, um, I don't know, maybe five years of this before I got any relief. 
And I remember this lady uh, named Dolores Winder, she prayed for me. And the next day, I had one of the worst migraines, and then it went away for a year. The next time I had a migraine, I was teaching on healing at the upper room, and it began to come over me. And I stood in front of the entire audience, and I said, I've had migraines my whole life. They've been, a, they've been gone for over a year, but I believe the Lord is going to heal me. So I'm going to stand up right now and declare exactly what I know God wants to do for me in front of all of you. They went away for five years. You see, I, I'm a big believer in this, and I know that many of us have pain, but I also know what it looks like to, to experience excruciating pain and to continue to pursue God's healing for my life personally. Um, I, now I, look, one answer I don't have for you is why we're not healed. I don't know. And, and the reason I don't know is not because there's not an answer to those things, but it's because there are so many different reasons for every different case that it's impossible for me to know all of the reasons or to give you all of those reasons in one simple statement. Um, I, I can't tell you the answer to that. Let me give you one other little tidbit here. Here's another one. This is uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 5 through 6. It says, He was not able to do miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Uh, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Now get that. This is Jesus himself. It says, He was not able to do any miracles except heal a few sick people. Now, this could be because he just couldn't do it. He prayed for them. Nothing happened. Or it could be that nobody would come to him to get healing. I don't know. It says that they had unbelief, the kind of unbelief that caused him to literally wonder at how unbelieving they were. But here's another passage, and this one I think is even more mysterious. He says in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, he says, Now on, that, on those days, while he was teaching, there were the Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting nearby, and they'd come from every village in Galilee, Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present with him to heal. Now, question for you. Why does Luke make that extra mention of there being power present? What's the point of saying that little bit right there? Unless he's pointing out that there's times where there's not power present. You know, one of the things I always encourage friends to do when, when I get asked for, for, for me to pray for somebody to be healed, I say, come to church. Do you know why I tell them that? Because usually there's power present for people to be healed at church. Two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. There is faith and power that is compounded by the multiplicity of people in one location. I don't understand why, I just know that that happens. And I want, to, I want to up the power voltage of every prayer that I pray. So I tell people, come to church. It's a great place to get healed. God's presence is there. And when his presence is there, he shows his presence through manifestations called healings. Um, here's the, the last misconception I want to deal with. No, sorry, the second to last. Two more misconceptions. Here's one more. God uses disease to bring us closer to him. How many of you have heard that? Now, I'm not going to say that that never happens, but I will tell you scripturally that it's far more the exception than it is the rule. This idea that God will use sickness to bring us closer to him. Here's why I, why I have a problem with it. Most people will point to specifically the thorn in Paul's flesh. They'll say something like, well, maybe this is just my, my thorn in my flesh. Anybody ever heard that one before? Let, let's go to that passage. Let's see why that passage is so misappropriate to use on, on average sickness. To, to say that, 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 that this might be a thorn in your flesh, here's, I'm going I'm to build a case here for a second that that would be inappropriate for most of us in this room to say about our own sickness or disease or to say about other people's sickness or disease. Thorn in their flesh. This is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Go there. Paul says, starts off in, in verse 2. Sorry, go back to verse 2. Verse 7, he talks about the thorn in his flesh. But let's go to verse 2. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. Such a strange thing to say, isn't it? I know a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. How many of you would ever say that in everyday conversation? Like, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. That's just, just a strange thing. He says, but God knows 
this man was caught up into the third heaven. And I know that this man, whether in the body or out apart from the body, I don't know. There he goes again. He, said, he was caught up into paradise. He heard things too sacred to be put into words. Things a person is not permitted to speak. Now, curious real quick. Who do you think Paul is talking about? He says, I know a man. Now, this is very typical of, of Jewish people at this time to talk about themselves as though they're, they're talking about somebody else. It was a way to sort of humbly approach something of, of great grandeur. And we know this because look at verse 7. Even because of the extraordinary character of the revelations, would any of you call the, the third heaven encounter of this man an extraordinary revelation? Where he says he was taken into paradise and he heard things that he was not permitted to speak, things too sacred that he shouldn't even repeat them. Would any of you call that an extraordinary revelation? Ah, okay. Therefore, so that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me. Now, we don't know if this messenger of Satan was persecution. We don't know if it was an illness. Many people think that Paul had eyesight problems and that this is what that was, a thorn in the flesh. Question for you. Why was it there? Why was a thorn in the flesh given to Paul? Extraordinary revelations. The next time you hear somebody come up to you and say, maybe this is just my thorn in my flesh, I want you to ask him this question. Really? Did you get taken up into the third heaven? Were you caught up into paradise? Did you hear things that were too sacred that a man is not permitted to repeat? Do you see how misplaced the thorn in the flesh thing is? It's like suddenly in, in Paul's day, God was giving thorns in the flesh to people who had extraordinary revelation. Today, he's just arbitrarily handing out cancer to whoever he decides. Isn't that strange? Now, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you've had a sickness, that God hasn't used it to bring you closer to God. Because he can use anything to speak to us. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure he used a donkey in the Old Testament to speak to us. He can use whatever means he wants to. But I will tell you this, it is far more the exception than the rule that he would hand out and dole out sickness to teach you a lesson. Hear me on that? It is far more the exception than the rule. God, why are you doing this to me? Isn't that a strange thing? Like when, when, when there's a natural disaster, we've been pre-programmed to believe that it's God doing something to us. Every natural disaster, when there's an insurance claim for that natural disaster, do you know what they call it? An act of God. It's literally a formal reason for why somebody has an insurance claim. Acts of God. What is that meant to tell us? What does that show that the American, Western, pre-existing belief is about that natural disaster? That it is God causing it. And I'm here to tell you that could not be further from the truth. Matter of fact, if you want to find reasons for natural disasters in particular, go read Psalm 82, where it talks about the earthquakes, the foundations of the earth are shaken. You're not going to find God doing these things. If anything, you find these, uh, these beings of extraordinary power being rebuked by God for the foundations of the earth being shaken. And I just threw something really weird at you. You can go read that one and, and then ask your pastor sometime. Your other pastor. Uh, <laughs> All right, here's, let's just take this, this idea that God is using sickness. Let's just take it a step further. If God is using your sickness to teach you so much, why not ask for something worse? It's obviously making you so holy. Why not go for something terminal? Better question, if your sickness is teaching you so much and it's God's will to teach you this lesson, why then do you go to the doctor? Do you really want to go up against the will of God? Do you see how that thinking doesn't make any sense? I don't know why it is this way. We, we, we do this sort of naturally, God, why have you done this to me? 
Here's the secret. It's not God. It's not. Matter of fact, last I checked, he's the one who heals us from all our diseases, not gives us all our diseases. It says, by his stripes we are not afflicted, not given cancer. The stripes didn't pay to afflict you. They paid to set you free. All right, last misconception. Won't it destroy someone's faith if they're not healed? How many of you have thought of that one before? I had that temptation happen to me this week. I was at the gym, and uh, this guy asked me to spot him. So as I'm, I'm asking him, like, after I spotted him, uh, spotting, how many of you know what spotting is? I don't know if you know what it is. You help the guy, lift the weights, whatever. Uh, anyway, I asked him, hey, what, uh, he specifically needed me to do something because of his shoulder. So I said, what's going on with your shoulder? He says, oh, I, I you know, have this problem where if I, if I do something just slightly incorrect, I'll have major pain. My neck will lock up. I said, huh. Now, immediately the thought comes, if he doesn't get healed, he's going to think you're crazy. If he doesn't get healed, he's not going to believe in your God. It always happens right when you're about to pray for somebody. Doesn't it? I, obviously, I, I prayed for the guy. I, I gave him my number. He's supposed to call me and, and let me know how he's doing. But he was too afraid to go test it out. It, my point, it, my, uh, let me finish this point. Okay, first off, if you're going to ruin their faith, if they don't get healed, you claim far too much responsibility for God's reputation being in your hands. Listen, if God needed you to protect his reputation, he would have never used you to be his evangelist in the first place. Any of you really good at presenting the gospel? You always get a, like maybe one or two hands go up on that, but hardly anybody says, no, I'm really good at that. That's right. That's because he's clearly Casey's son. He's got his daddy's confidence. <laughs> But, I mean, that's the truth. Think about that. If he needed you to protect his reputation, he would have never used you to begin with. He would have never told Timothy, go and do the work of an evangelist. I mean, last I checked, none of us were that good, which is why he gave us the Holy Spirit to begin with. Remember he says, don't prepare beforehand what you're to say, for the Holy Spirit will give you at that moment what you need. It's because he knew that we would never be capable of doing it on our own. But uh, here's what I've actually experienced the majority of time. Whether people are healed or not, they're always incredibly thankful. Do you know the people that have actually been the most hurt by me praying for them? It's not unbelievers. It's actually those who claim belief. They're the ones who have done the most persecution, which makes sense. It's always been the religious spirit that tries to crucify us. It's not those who don't have religion. It's those who do. Majority of time when I've prayed for somebody, whether they've been healed or not, they're usually incredibly thankful because in their mind, what you did was an inc incredibly vulnerable thing to do. You were willing to look foolish just to bless them, and you asked for nothing in return. Now, here's the other thing. In comparison to other world religions, when you pray for the sick and you give them these things freely... You're unlike all the other religious leaders around the world. Your Muslim healing, healers, they charge for you for, to, to receive prayer. We give it away freely because we've received it freely. Um, I remember I was, I, I might have shared this story, so forgive me if I've already shared it, but I was at a Starbucks one time, and this guy, uh, I'm sitting down with my buddy Mike, and uh, we're just having coffee, and there was nowhere else to sit in the Starbucks. And this guy comes and says, hey, do you mind if I sit with you guys? There's just nowhere else to sit. So he says, sure. And he walked up with this cane. And uh, I introduced myself to him, and he says his name's Marshall. And I said, Marshall, why do you have that cane? He said, well, I was in a motorcycle accident a few years ago, and I, I crushed my, my, my ankle. I said, well, uh, it just so happens that you happen to be sitting with a healer. I hate that phrase, but with people who don't believe, it's kind of a cool thing. They're like, oh, a healer, huh? I said, and if you'd like, um, I can take care of that problem for you, and I'll do it for free. When you throw in the I'll do it for free, they feel like they're getting something. 
It's like, not only are you weird, but you're the weird guy giving away free stuff. And how many of us like free stuff? I said, yeah, I'll do it for free. No charge. He goes, okay, yeah, sure. What, what do I do? I said, no, nothing. You just sit there. I'm going to put my hand on your ankle, and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. I said, would that be okay with you? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And so I put my hand on him, and I pray for him, and I tell him to go check it out. Marshall gets up, and his ankle is completely healed. You know what he didn't do? He didn't then persecute me for praying for him. He didn't then say, well, how dare you pray for me? Don't you know how much that potential disappointment would have hurt me? He didn't do that. Matter of fact, next thing I know, he wants to hang out with me. And so he shows up to a meeting where that friend of mine, my, my buddy Mike, was sharing the gospel. And at the end of the meeting, Mike com uh, Marshall comes up to me and he's in tears. And I said, Marshall, what's going on? He says, man, I, I don't know. I, I've heard this story before. I said, yeah, but now it means something to you, doesn't it? He said, yeah. I, I said, now, now you know it's true. He goes, yeah. Marshall literally heard the gospel this time with ears to hear. Why? Because somebody was willing to pray for them and look like, pray for him and look like a fool. Leaving the results in God's hands. When Paul talked about preaching the gospel, he talked about doing it with signs and wonders. And he said, so that you know that I have fully preached the gospel. I'm convinced that fully preaching the gospel means not just giving them some sort of facts. It means proving to them and showing them the God that they can worship and that can save their lives for all eternity. It means introduction to that God. Not introduction to a book that they should follow. Introduction to a person and an, and an actual experience with that person. That's why I say real faith. Real faith means hearing God and doing what he says. It means an actual experience with God, something interactive. And I'm convinced that fully, fully preaching the gospel looks like that. Uh, it means there's an exchange. Um, my hope is that you guys would have all of that, that, that you would begin to present the gospel fully. And I think it's far easier to tell somebody about Jesus after they've been healed rather than trying to convince them into Jesus so that they can be healed. It's so much easier to tell them about Jesus after you've already just given something. 